we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is Existential the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Hi, folks. I am today in the offices of the legendary... <laughs> Michael McBride, the, who's a, a father, a husband, pastor of the Way Berkeley, national activist. You've probably seen Michael McBride on television, MSNBC. You've seen him on Kamal Bell. So, I mean, he's shaking his head right now because he don't, he don't, you know, he's he's also a very humble man. So, I I want y'all to hear from Michael McBride. When I started doing this podcast, there were a handful of people that I thought I want to talk to them on the podcast. I want people to hear from them. And I'm, we're sharing a microphone today. I'm sitting in his office, and I'm here. I drove through the rain and the floods to be here. So, mm-hmm. Mike, why don't you say what's up to everybody? Yo, what's cracking, everybody? Honored to be with my my bro, uh, the, the, the great uh, preacher, singer, songwriter, <laughs> now podcaster, uh, Corey Lee. But, no, nah, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for coming through the weather, man. It's, it's, 
is raining uh, both literally and metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> and at least the literal rain is water. I'm here to tell right, you. Right, and it's passing. Other stuff is raining, boy. Yes, sir. And I don't know if we're going to be able to wash ourselves clean from this one. Man. So, okay, so I'm sitting in your office right now, and I'm looking at a picture of you, the Oval Office, with with Barack Obama, and a picture of you standing at a at a protest with a microphone. Another picture of you with, you know, standing and you're speaking. Looks like you're in D.C. And then there's a picture of you with Dr. Cornell West, and y'all are arm in arm. And when I first saw this picture in your office, I saw the picture with you in the Oval Office holding hands and you're praying with uh, Barack Obama. And I saw the picture of you with Cornell West and a couple of white men. And at first I thought, oh, you're praying in that picture too. Believe <laughs> me, I was praying. <laughs> but as I look closer... I'm praying I'm getting my hair <laughs> As I look closer, those two men holding you guys' arms are police officers Man. who are arresting you. Ferguson, Ku Klux Klan police officers. Absolutely. I was praying. I was praying in English and tongues. I'm here to tell you. So what is that like when you go out to to protest you go out to uh to stand as a pastor in your collar as a clergyman that is is standing for justice for people to be arrested for that you know i mean what what is what is that experience like well i i think at the end of the day um you know protest is about trying to expose the moral bankruptcy Mm. of either systems or of Mm. those who superintend those systems. Mm. Um, Protest is like Jeremiah, Mm. you know, the prophet who had to make very real um, the judgments of God to a people whose heart either had grown so cold or their imagination had been so dull. And so um, we do protest to bear witness of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. I know other people do protest who may not be faith, people of faith for other reasons. Um, but our and my participation in protest is is about faithfulness. It's about bearing witness. Um, it's about demonstrating to the agents of death that um, we are not afraid of you, mm. and that the power of God is greater than your power to destroy our bodies. <clears throat> and uh, mm. of course, after you go through the protest then we have to convince ourselves of that too because there's always trauma <laughs> and a lot of collateral damage. But in, in the moment, you know, that, that is why we try to, to do a protest. It's to, it's to, it's to create a, a, some dissonance. Mm. Yeah, so Dr. King talked about that. And, and, and yesterday was Dr. King's birthday. Um, we're headed into the weekend where churches all over America are going to mm-hmm. be you know, acknowledging MLK in their services. Some may do even more than just, uh, you know, a, a commercial. Um, Dr. King talked about, you know, sort of creating that dissonance and creating that space. And Dr. King went to the White House, mm-hmm. as you are with, you know, Barack Obama. I, I remember uh, probably last year, there was a lot of um, controversy over a prominent black pastor who went to the White House. Mm-hmm. And I remember I called you and I said, I said, oh, man, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I called you. And, oh, it's actually, it was a bunch of black it folks of went to the White House. Men. And I called you and I said, what would you have done if they asked you? Now, what do you remember? What, what would you have? To, what? How do you see now with who we have in the office right now mm-hmm. and clergy going to visit this White House 
What do you say to that? Well, I did get invited to the White House, to this White House, you know, around some criminal justice reform stuff. I decided not to go because um, I, I did feel like um, the, the kind of um, diabolical, insidious, immoral leadership this administration represents, it, I just didn't feel like I could, I could square it with myself. Mm. Um, the White House and trips to the White House that are made public is political theater mm. at its highest level. Mm. No discussion in the White House that is publicized is a real discussion mm. where decisions are made. Mm. People are making decisions far away from um, the, the, the light of media, um, the meetings that we go to, even this meeting that you see me praying with President Obama, uh, was a, a annual African American faith leaders meeting they did in February. About fifteen or twenty people got invited, mm -hmm. um, and you pretty much only get two minutes to say anything if you're lucky to the president. So you're not really going there to really influence anything. You're mm -hmm. going there to try to participate in a story in a narrative. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. given that Donald Trump is attempting to craft a narrative about his um, concern for, as he calls it, the blacks, right? Um, or, <laughs> or inner cities, or, you know, criminals, shithole, like, you know, he's yeah. got all these, yeah. you know, to be a part of that, for me, was not appealing. Now, um, if I were in the White House, and Donald Trump uh, was going, you know, off the rails, or as that preacher meeting happened, people were starting to praise Donald Trump mm. in ways that I felt to be not true. I'd have probably got thrown out the White House <laughs> because I would have continued to speak the truth to Donald Trump and uh, they probably would have removed me. And mm. then, you know, I'd have been famous for being kicked out the White House. So sometimes I wish I'd have went because then, you know, he could also give another expression of, you know what it means to be there. Um, I, 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 people could say, you know, why didn't you get kicked out of the, the Obama White House? Well, I didn't get kicked out of the Obama White House, but I was threatened with my uh, um, access to the White House being limited because I continued to unapologetically raise issues related to urban gun violence, related to police violence, related to setting political prisoners like the Black Panther Party's free. Mm -hmm. I continue to raise reparations. And so mm. my, my, uh, Access to the White House under President Obama did get limited. Yeah, so people, people, a lot of people don't um, know this about a lot of activists and people who are engaging in speaking truth to power, mm -hmm. especially when you're black. Mm -hmm. People assume that, well, did you say that when Obama was in office? Well, absolutely. But, but you were one that when Obama was in office, you had a lot to say and then it, also. It wasn't just me. I mean, there, there's a lot of people who said things to President Obama that he and his administration didn't appreciate. The difference between President Obama and his administration is they're not petty. Mm. <laughs> you know, they, they, they can hear things that they didn't like. Yes. And they would try to explain it away like, you know, I mean, from their perspective, they felt like they were political realities that many mm. of us could not possibly mm. fathom. Mm. And I disagree with that, but that was their position. But this idea that, you know, uh, people were not concerned with um, uh, lowering the rates of abortion during this previous president is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And and or 
uh, drone attacks in Africa. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. We mm-hmm. raised all those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our folks were the people who developed the, the mm-hmm. uh, phrase uh, deporter in chief mm-hmm. in the White House. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but but the, the point is um, our role as faith leaders, people who believe in love, peace and justice is to speak the truth wherever you are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> with the conviction that the spirit provides to you and keep an open heart to, as Dr. West says, where you keep the porch light on because you never know when somebody's going to come home. Right. So mm-hmm. you just don't throw people away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it requires lots of discipline and prayer and, and, and clarity and humility because you may be right on some things and, and wrong on other things. And you have to be willing to, to, to keep learning, but also keep showing up. And so, um, you know, we, we have lots of stories and memories of, 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 of our um, success in moving the, the ball forward in the last administration. And quite frankly, you know, even though I wasn't in some of the rooms um, or any of the rooms of this administration, some of the people that I know, evangelical folks um, or criminal justice advocates, they did go to the White House and they have been moving the ball forward on some criminal justice reform stuff um, a little bit differently and at a slower pace. But, you know, progress is never, as Dr. King says, it doesn't come in on the wheels of inevitability. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a constant struggle. Mm-hmm. And we who love peace and justice must... Uh, must keep pushing for that struggle yeah. to, to be realized. Yeah, now Dr. King was uh, a pastor, and you are a pastor. You're a pastor of the Way Berkeley. It's still early. It, it, yes, no, we, we celebrate 15 years this year. Yeah, about, 15 years ooh. at the church. Now, a lot of people, both people of color and certainly a lot of white folks, will not take a side, quote-unquote, in the way that you have when it comes to speaking out against the administration, speaking out against injustices that happen. Um, being seen at protests, being arrested, things like that. What is it that fuels you as a pastor to say, yes, I'm a pastor of a church, but that does not mean that I, sh- that I shouldn't take a side morally on things that I see happening in the world around me. So you'll speak up, you'll act, you'll go out there. So what drives that? Well, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, growing up, my father... Um, introduced us to Eyes on the Prize videos. We would watch Eyes on the Prize videos every February growing up. Uh, he would take us to MLK days. Um, mm-hmm. Actually took, we, we, we attended San Francisco Christian School. It was a white Southern Baptist school mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And they were one of those white private Christian schools that refused to acknowledge MLK day. Oh boy. And so my mm-hmm. father would take us out of school on MLK Day <laughs> so we could go to the MLK parades in San Francisco. And so, you know, he kind of grew up with this consciousness around um, just Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, for me, I, I pastored, um, I was a youth pastor at Bible Way Christian Center in San Jose um, in the, the, the second half of the 90s, so 96 to 2000, I got beat up by some cops in San Jose, um, in March of 1999. And the young people who were part of my youth group, um, were so, you know, as I was traumatized by it. And we, we spent a lot of time trying to redress that in San Jose. But as I talked to the young people, they told me this happens to me all the time. And I said, well, why haven't you ever said anything? And the young people told me, um, 
we didn't believe that the church would respond to this. Like this, we, this is not a part of our lives that we would bring to the church. And I really wow. felt the spirit say to me, what is it about the ministry you've created where these children and their parents will trust you with the, uh, with the um, salvation of their souls, but not the safety of their bodies. Mm. And so in the midst of my own trauma and violation and pain, I, I was be, being agitated by God about how do I develop a ministry a vision that does not just focus as a great Pentecostal uh, on building a great big church and preaching and, and shouting and swinging front of chandeliers, rolling on the floor, mm-hmm. speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. and on a good Sunday levitating, <laughs> right? Um, what does it mean to actually also respond to the pain of the people in my congregation? And so I ended up going to seminary in Duke, and I met Eugene Rivers and a whole bunch of different people through my journey that helped me to, to concretize what ministry, um, Pentecostal-based ministry, that served urban, black and brown, vulnerable, poor people, how do you merge all that together? And so I I came into the protest part of it after Ferguson, but I think my trajectory of ministry starts out as a directly impacted person who experienced the violence Mm. of this state. Mm. Um, As Viktor Frankl talks about, suffering um, loses its um, power when you when you create a precise meaning to it. And so mm. existentialism was a part of my therapy when I was being um, going through my healing process. And so I've always tried to figure out what is the purpose behind pain and can it be redemptive? Um, and uh, the work that I do now is just an extension of my pastoral work. I, I mm. don't view it as something that is separate, although um, as I am now trying to live with more balance, I'm trying to figure out you know, how, is it possible to do with this level of intensity and still provide, you know, adequate pastoral ministry to people who who are not just dealing with systemic evil, but also kind of just personal, yeah. personal human everyday yeah. challenges. Didn't Dr. King have a similar, come to a similar place with his work? Yeah, I, I think, you know, he had a, there's a, a famous uh, uh, speech, not speech or, or, or piece he wrote called uh, a, 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 a cup of coffee at midnight where he was really wrestling with all the demands that his work had on his family and on his own psyche and his church. And, and, and it is, it is, it is, you leave a pound of flesh, you know, mm. in, in, in the streets or wherever you're at doing this work. Um, and so this is why I think our organizing work has to become much more um, focused on building a broad base of people. I don't think one or two people have ever intended to carry the weight mm-hmm. of a liberation struggle. Uh, I think it will crush all of us because it's just that heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think institutional spaces like churches or <clears throat> denominations or uh, fellowships or networks have a powerful opportunity to um, bear the, the, the weight of a fallen world. And, and um, as Jesus uh, um, did on the cross, hopefully provide some pathways for redemption. And the mighty clouds of joy, you sing a song and say, must Jesus bear this cross alone? <laughs> and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. A cross, a cross for, for you me. and me. Yeah. So, all right. There were, every year this time, as we come to MLK Day, MLK Weekend at churches and, and Dr. King's birthday, I'm reminded of things that he said, for instance, some things he said in the letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, and some of his, his, his sermons that he preached that in the context of his day, 
made a bunch of white folks mad. Mm -hmm. Now today, a lot of white folks will look very fondly on Dr. King. That's because he's dead. Is, <laughs> right, okay, <laughs> right. But say, okay, so so here, I, I would like to, for, from white that. White Christians seem to love dead black <laughs> prophets. You know, it's a fascinating thing. Which, which again, I think is a testament to the to the um, the heretical uh, nature of white American Christianity. Yes, you know, to me, it is it, it has very little value in, in my world right now. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think um, that's what I wanted to lead into some hard sayings. Yeah. I, I, I want I want to introduce a hard saying segment because you got some hard sayings, and and the, but they're they're hard sayings in a way that is they are like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets, that they all their sayings were hard sayings. And in their context, you don't get uh, locked up, you know, harassed. You don't get persecuted. You don't get death threats. You don't get murdered for saying nice things. So often, <laughs> so, you, know, you know, for saying for saying truths that everybody goes, oh, yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to, to hear you really talk about um, the white evangelical church and and because when you talk about the trauma of carrying this burden alone a lot of people have looked to the white church and gone will y'all help us and you seem to be like you know y'all need to stop <laughs> y'all need to stop appealing to them because they're not coming no i i think a lot of white evangelicals need to be born again they need mm -hmm. to be saved mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. like you know I've heard you say my, my dad used to say stuff like there's only one message the bible has for the devil repent <laughs> It ain't asking the devil for help. It ain't, you know, it's just repent. And I believe the same thing for a lot of the, the expressions of Western white Christianity. Um, where, where, what evidence, mm -hmm. you know, John the Baptist says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I was at the, the lynching museum um, in uh, Birmingham, no, uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, that Brian Stevenson Equal Justice Initiative had launched, and as I walked through the museum, I, I began to cry um, because mm. you just see, you know, the, the the magnitude of death that was carried out on Black folks with, without any recourse in mm -hmm. over like fifty year period. This this museum captured about 40, 4,500 or so deaths and excavated mm. these people's names. Had coffins, mm. metal coffins, some suspended in the air, some mm. just laid out, and you just would go and, and and look at the reasons why black men, women, and children were lynched, bodies parts cut off, Jesus. Um, you know, uh, mailed to other towns, and on and on and on, um, for looking at a white woman, for being accused of stealing some food, for not getting out of the the, the pathway of an oncoming uh, a horse. Uh, for um, uh, uh, not calling the the, the neighbor uh, Mister for mm. you know just 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 things that you know are are so minuscule the the value of a black body for these white folks in that time was so um, insignificant but the thing that made me cry the most as I you know, just walk through this museum is I thought about what kind of gospel was being preached by white yeah. Southern pastors yes. to white churchgoers yes. where you could be in a church singing, praise and worship, reading scripture at 10, 11 a.m., 
conclude your service and at 1 p.m. be burning and lynching and beating another black Christian from across the train tracks. Jesus. Like, what kind of gospel is that? It, it, th- that gospel obviously has no redemptive or salvific value for, for, for black people. No, for anybody. Right? And so for me, you know, the question I just want to keep asking evangelicals is, are you preaching that same gospel right. today? Right. Obviously, white evangelicals are because you have figured out a theological formula mm. to justify your support for a a despot <laughs> for for a a a and, and that's just the expression. That's just the greatest expression of mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know um, the obsession uh, on guns and your second amendment rights or um, your obsession with um, uh, abortion at the risk or or at the neglect of of the quality of life for when the baby and their family (laughs) makes it out the womb your your obsession with um, all these issues that um, allow you to have a politic a practice of politics where you are willing to watch thousands of bodies be destroyed mm. and you don't have much to say about it. The people in your congregation can't discern that they are being hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led astray. It is what the Apostle Paul told the Galatians who have bewitched you. Yeah, for sure. That you should believe such a lie. And so until more white pastors have the courage to stand up in front of their people and not talk about uh, the 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 Joe Osteen expressions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's mm-hmm. just about how you feel good and how you have a healthy marriage and how you you know fix your credit and how you you know uh, 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 um, you know silence the haters mm-hmm. and you know you, mm-hmm. you have all these mm-hmm. these milk toast messages that just maintain the status quo of people who are willing to support. Leaders who literally are destroying what God created. Yeah, man. I just don't have no use for those kind of pastors and certainly no use for that kind of gospel. And, you know, thankfully, um, you know, my, my platform is not that, that big, I guess. So it don't really matter. But, <laughs> I mean, but that's just that's just my how I roll. And I, I think that Jesus um, would 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 and is um, his heart is breaking for what we call the church in America. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. I, I, I do not believe white evangelicals um, have any kind of magisterium, any kind of authority uh, to define what the church is. Absolutely um, I think they are but one expression of the body of Christ. Um, their colonization and uh, obsession with power gives them an outsized uh, view of what they the role they play. Right. So, so uh, to that to that point, there's been a lot of talk lately uh, from some white evangelicals who have been calling, not only saying James Cone's liberation theology was heretical, but saying he wasn't even a Christian. So to they say your, James Cone's not. A yes. Christian? Yeah. So so <laughs> <laughs> they don't even know what it means to be a Christian. So to uh, your. They know what so it I know means James Cone was very influential for you, and it has been for me also. So. Could you speak a little bit to, because you started going there, when you started talking about like how a lot of white evangelicals feel like they are the authority to speak to what is valid Christian expression and what is not. 
Yeah, so you know, my I have an interesting relationship with James Cone. You know, I I only met Dr. Cone once, uh, well, once or twice. Um, I met him at AAR one time, and then I met him at, at a union meeting with Dr. Uh, Dr. Cornell West. Um, <clears throat> um, I never read James Cone's work until I was uh, at Duke in seminary. Mm. So that was 2002. Okay. Um, I, I have been more influenced by Dr. King's work. Okay. Dr. King's vision of Christian faithfulness to me is just as radical as mm. Dr. Cone's. Mm. I think Dr. Cone's um, theological um, uh, response to kind of the white normativity of the theological discourse was outside my purview because I did not have like a real deep theological orientation as a right. black church Pentecostal, holiness Pentecostal. Um, we didn't read a lot of like white theology. Okay. You know, our okay. world was shaped by black mm. performance, black, black practice of Christian faith. But the interesting thing about black practice of Christian faith is black crap, black practice of Christian faith always revolved around black people. Black suffering, black genius, black excellence, black struggle. So to be in a black church just growing up during the crack cocaine era, mm. I had we had no choice but to understand that God was with us. Had to. Right. Like, you, have no other, I, you, know, you got no hope otherwise. I didn't need I didn't need to read James Cone to understand God stood mm. with oppressed people because God was standing with me. Wow. God was standing with my friends. God wow. was standing when our friends got shot down in the street, we had to do funerals. It was God and the Holy presence of the Holy Spirit that that put our hearts back together, that gave us courage to go outside our homes, that that helped us to push through the the, the kind of racism and exploitation of the eighties and the seventies. We 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 knew that through our experience. Mm-hmm. James Cole, when I first started to read him, helped then to unmask the limitation of white theological discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to this day, like I, I, I feel like James Cone is a wonderful, important voice and, and, um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, pole in the ground for, uh, those who would be trained in seminary and try to lead churches in this age, because it does, uh, create a certain kind of counterbalance to the prevalence of say white theological discourse. But I also think Dr. King and I think just the everyday experience of everyday black people right. living in, in and, and continue to hold on to uh, to the God of history and the, the tradition of, of, of Christian practice. I think I think those are just as compelling to me. Um, and I try to teach that to folks who come through our church. Our church mm-hmm. is, you know, predominantly black. We certainly have a, a wonderful uh, vibrant, um, non-black constituency in our church, mm-hmm. Asian, Latino, white. Uh, but I ground our church experience and expression through the lens of black Christianity. Yes. Yeah, so, so, and my kids and my family loves your church. Your church is my kids' favorite church in the world. Like, <laughs> like, like, like oh, <laughs> are we going to the way this morning? And if I'm not singing in some other church, we come to the way. It's about a 40 minute drive. I have noticed that there are white folks at the way. There's mm-hmm. uh, Asian folks at the way, Latino folks at the way. But you just said you have maintained with the way that this is a black expression mm-hmm. of faith. Have you ever felt any any sort of, I don't know, pressure or obligation at all to to be 
to, uh, I don't know, to, to change that at all for the sake of the guests that are coming who aren't black? Well, you know, as, as someone who, who's hope as a pastor, right, our success in, in our field is often around about, you know, uh, nickels, numbers, and noise, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. know, how much money can you raise? How many people can you gather? How, how much good music can you create, <laughs> exactly. right? Um, and so I still, to this day, you know, believe that our congregation um, could disciple and impact many, many more people than the several hundred that we are able to um, weekly um, gather and, 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 um, and, and disciple. I think we tried to lean into the whole multiracial church mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. And I did have this moment in my pastoral ministry probably about seven or eight years ago where I was, I was looking around and I was seeing how you don't find multiracial churches pastored by a black pastor. You don't. Um, and so I was saying, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to figure out, can we create that? Particularly since we're in Berkeley, we're by the university. We always have a ton of folks coming through here. And so we tried to, we tried to lean into that. Um, I found that, um, that quickly lost its appeal to me, uh, because, um, there's something that everyone, I believe, um, can benefit by experiencing the, the slave religion of yeah. the black church. Oh, yeah. Know? Um, oh, yeah. The, 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 the. The persistence of that, the 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 unspoken and the spoken ways in which God is made flesh. Yes. Um, you know how we live in the tension of unanswered prayers, and mm. how we we experience the euphoria when God shows up. Yes. I mean, like, just what does it mean to live in that space? Not saying that other people don't have that experience, but you know, I I have, and many of us have experienced that. What does it mean to to be a hush harbor of sorts, a, a place where we don't have to uh, be preoccupied with the gaze and the the the, the values of, of of white mainstream culture. And so, um, I I've tried to always create space for um, uh, people who are uh, obviously um, not anti-black mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to uh, serve alongside and with us. Um, but I do believe that um, I found my priority to quickly get clarified, particularly after Ferguson, hmm. Um, hmm. that I did not want um, our congregation to be obsessed with appealing to um, non-black folks. I just wanted us to be welcoming to whoever came, yeah. knowing that um, we're going to be who we are. Yeah. And uh, there's room at the cross for you, mm-hmm. and the water here is sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you go, you go get what you're looking for if you come, um, and and we'll we'll continue to try to be faithful in that regard. And, and thankfully, over the years, we've always had at least a twenty twenty five percent part of our congregation that's non-black, and we've not done anything really to try to appeal yeah. or reach out to folks. I think people see our justice work; they see mm-hmm. our, our our space in the community. We're known as a very loving and embracing and welcoming space. And so, and it's not to say that there aren't tensions, you know, um, whenever you get folks across the spectrum of difference, both intra-racial, intra-racially, um, uh, around gender, around mm-hmm. sexual orientation, mm-hmm. around class. So, you know, this ain't just a place where there's no tension. Right. And where all of our kind of dysfunctions, our foibles, 
our brilliant edges are, are often colliding with one another. Um, but I do believe we do the best we can to, um, to act with integrity and ask for the grace of God to yeah. cover us when we fall short. Yeah, your, your church expressions on Sunday are full of justice. And you, you pray for incarcerated folks. You mm -hmm. pray about gun violence. It's why every week I've been here, I've heard you do that. Um, and, and it's important to say we pray for that because that is the experience of our congregation. Yeah. And so, like, I try to tell some of our non-black folks who may or may not be very touched by this issue that this is not, we're not praying on behalf of someone. Mm. Mm. You know, there are people in our church whose children are incarcerated or they just got home from prison. And their friends are literally still in jail. So we're praying for our friends. Wow. We're praying for our children. We're not praying for a, a news a news headline. Yeah. We know people who have been deported here in Berkeley who've had their house kicked down. We've been to the border. We so the, the we're not doing this as like an intercessory right. for someone yeah. we don't know. Yeah, and you're not trying to be woke or trying to be relevant. You're actually no. addressing the local needs of the people. Who are attending the church, and I think, I think when Doctor when Doctor Cohn says that God is black, mm. I think that this idea when I listen to you talk about the church, and I think about Paul writing to persecuted people, mm -hmm. oppressed people, and when Paul even starts talking to Gentiles and Romans, he's a Jewish person and understands persecution and understands what it's like to have your ancestors be in four hundred years of slavery. Mm -hmm. I feel like now in America, what we have are people who don't understand struggle, don't understand persecution, have not been um, a part of communities that are affected by oppression, trying to set the rules for what it means to follow a God who sided with a people who were oppressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a, an interesting, interesting thing when I hear you talk about your church um, and, and I think about how much the white evangelical church is, is dominating the headlines and, and sort of shaping how people think about God and think about America. And, and so I, I just appreciate what your church does well, I, and, I mean, and what and, your voice is. And I, I, I think it's just important to always, you know, say that we, we aren't we aren't anomalies. You know, like I, I do think that there are churches like ours across lots of different kinds of spaces I mean, think of think of the the churches that center more queer mm -hmm. um, kind of theology or sensibilities because they're trying to create space for uh, folks who are historically marginalized mm -hmm. around their sexual orientation, or churches that center more womenist, feminist kind of sensibilities, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like I think all of our churches could be more intersectional. Uh, where Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, uh, coined and famed around the ways our our identities or our um, social oppressions overlap, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, yes. But you can't be one thing, you can't be all things to all people. And so right. you, you have to kind of say, this is who we are. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to be as faithful as we can. And, I, and so I do think it's really important for all of our churches to like try to live into the calling that we have and do it as faithfully as we can, but be humble and know that you know we should never feel like we're like Elijah, you know, like feeling like you know, Ahab and Jezebel, we the only ones out here. And God's like, listen, you know, get up. There's, There's a, whole people, yeah, there's a right? bunch of people. You know? Yeah. And, but, and so, yeah, while, while I appreciate what we're doing and we hope to plant more churches and help start more churches because we do feel like millennials in particular um, are looking for something that, that does not necessarily 
um, erase people's unique yes. um, experiences and and social um, conditions, but that always foreground the work of Jesus, mm. right? Which mm-hmm. is never threatened by um, the particularities by which yeah. we have been created for sure. through, you know? For sure. Um, well, one last thing before we wrap up is because, you know, I've, I've wanted to really have an emphasis of, you know, Dr. King mm-hmm. and, and it being his, you know, a time where the country thinks and remembers his work. Is there any work that Dr. King was doing before he was assassinated that you feel we should be picking up on or you have picked up on that we're continuing to do now? What, what work is, is left undone? Well, well I think that... Um... You know, Dr. King, when he got, was assassinated, was launching a poor people's campaign um, that um, wasn't just in the United States. It was mm. a global campaign. Um, and I was at the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination in Memphis, and I cannot remember the elder who I was talking about. Um, but there's a great, a great anthology, uh, anthology book called To Shape a World, the political and moral writings or underpinnings of Dr. King's moral vision. Everyone should get that text and just read it. Dr. King's vision for a poor people's campaign was already taking root in about 30 countries across the world. Wow. He wasn't just organizing sanitation workers in Memphis. Dr. King was literally pulling the infrastructure for a global poor people's campaign to wow. upset the global exploitation of the militaristic, um, racist, and um, uh, exploitative economic conditions. Mm. And so Dr. Mm. William Barber, who's one of my professors at Duke, along with uh, Liz Steele Harris, have really um, done a good job of resurrecting the Poor People's Campaign effort here in the United States. But I think it, it has to continue to be broadened, and we all have to start asking ourselves, what are the kind of concrete policy decisions we can make that can help us um, disrupt this kind of war economy, the kind of uh, racist uh, economy, the kind of uh, capitalistic exploitative economy, the ecological disaster economy. Um, Right right now, we know that um, the wealth of the world is enough to support everything that lives in the Mm. world. It's, It's just not being shared. Um, We're hoping that guaranteed basic income strategies where we raise the basement of poverty can be something that churches and and people of faith, followers of Jesus, all begin to champion and research. What does it mean to to make our tax base, all of us pay taxes? It's cheaper to house unhoused people Mm. in homes that we build with our tax dollars than to leave them languishing in tent cities on the street. Wow. Um, It's cheaper to um, uh, uh, provide a hot meal every day for a young person at school than it is to uh, pay truancy officers to try to, you know, chase kids down because they're out during the school. They're usually, you know, up to no good because they can't, you know, pay for basic needs. Right. Like there's ways that we can use our tax dollars to be much more compassionate. Um, And so I think that Dr. King's work is about creating, uh, as, I, as I said about protest, a moral contradiction in the public square. Um, Dr. King talked about ambulance drivers running through red lights. 
um, you know, as as a necessity during an emergency, that all of us stop the red lights to maintain social order. But there's such an emergency mm. that when when a, an emergency happens, uh, police officers run through red lights, mm. ambulance drivers run through red lights. Mm-hmm. Even you and me, mm-hmm. you your 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 wife in the car getting ready to have a baby, you ain't sitting in no red light. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. I'm trying to get somewhere and it's an emergency, I look both ways, make sure I'm safe, yeah. and I'm running through a red light. Yeah. Right now, this country is in such a state of emergency. We need more Christians who are willing to run through Touch red lights. Neighbor. We need people who understand, as Dr. King said, it is our duty to disobey an unjust law. Wow. It is our duty, our moral duty to disobey an unjust law. Too many Christians in this country are so committed to law and order. Law and order will continue to destroy this country y'all love. Mm. See, I don't care nothing about the United States of America like that. Mm. You know, this country is not, I'm not a patriotic person like that. Mm -hmm. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. Yeah, for sure. It don't say God so loved the United States of America. It don't sing God bless America. It don't sing none of that. For God so loved the world. I care about the people of the United States of America, just like I care about the people in uh, Mexico and in Brazil and in uh, uh, Zambia mm-hmm. and in Russia and in Iraq and 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 uh, I, the people of the world should be our concern. Yeah. And so, what does it mean then for us to acknowledge that if God so loved the world, then our duty to this country we are in is mm-hmm. to ensure that the stewardship of our resources, of our power, blesses the world, not just the United States of America. So this idea that America, America first, first, yeah, that's yeah. not biblical. That's white supremacist ideology. Mm-hmm. And too many Christian people are caught up in white supremacist ideology. And you can't just put no Jesus frosting on it and call it the gospel. <laughs> it don't work. It just don't work. And, and it may work for you, but it don't work for all yeah. of us who are not. Um, feeding into your very narrow understanding of what is human, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what is the imago dei, mm-hmm. and certainly what is our mandate to uh, follow Jesus well. And so I think Dr. King's um, legacy is one of faithfulness. It's one of truth-telling. It's one of um, expanding belonging. He talks about the beloved community. Mm. Um, read Dr. King. Don't just read the I Have a Dream speech. Right. Read Strength to Love. Read The Other America. Read uh, Running Red Lights. Read Dr. King's work mm-hmm. um, and ask yourself, particularly we who are Christians, am I following Jesus in ways that help expand my imagination the way it expanded Dr. King's. And I think once we can do that, it's a start. Um, and all we can do is start and keep keep moving and keep yeah. continuing um, until the Lord returns. And I hope the Lord comes back soon because <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> this is quite a thing we deal with right now. It is a thing. Well, dude, thanks for your time, man. I so appreciate you oh, taking no, the time man. to bless the folks with with the, with your words. I, I, this was profoundly inspiring for me just to, to hear... It's just, it's good to hear, man, just other folks that look at the world and say that we have work to do and feel that burden of the work, 
you know, like like I think that there's a there's there's kind of a weariness that comes with with people that are working to see the world be as it should be, mm-hmm. um, and you know, oftentimes if you're not around people like that, if the other the only Christians you're around or only people you're around are people who are happy all the time. And, and and wondering what's wrong with you, yeah. you know, you can start to think that you might be crazy. Like, but but it's good to be around people who see the world that way and, and are trying to change it. So, dude, thanks for your time today, folks. Um, you can stay in touch with with Michael McBride uh, through his Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'll include all that in the show notes. I want to thank all of you for listening. Thank you to Comfort Fit for the music. The song is called Sorry. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast, for sharing, reviewing, and rating it. And thank you for helping us to contend for a better world. One conversation at a time.